Alumni Audio Lab. I am Doris Obrecht and delighted to be speaking to you on this, our anniversary. This is the 30th episode of this podcast, which makes it a very special occasion. So you are listening to Alumni Audio Lab, a bi-monthly podcast from the OEAD. This is the Central Service Center for European and International Mobility and Cooperation Programs in the fields of education, science and research. In this podcast, I talk with alumni of OEAD who have all studied or done research in Austria. We talk about their lives, research, their background, and sometimes also about current events and developments. Today, I have the honor of talking to Dr. Dean Vuletic. He's an historian of contemporary European history based at the University of Vienna at the Research Center for the History of Transformations. He specializes in topics such as Central and Eastern Europe, the Cold War, cultural diplomacy and popular culture. And he is a leading academic expert on the history of the Eurovision Song Contest. He was even named Professor Song Contest by the Austrian Broadcasting Station ORF. Dean holds a PhD from the Columbia University and a master's degree from Yale University, and he was holder of the Marie Curie Scholarship. I'm sure you'll agree that these are very impressive credentials. I'm very happy that he is here today. Welcome, Dean, to the Alumni Audio Lab. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Dean, your research moves around history in southeastern Europe and former communist states. What fascinates you about these regions? Well, I grew up in Australia, and I remember that as a child I would read so much about different countries, uh, their histories, politics, cultures, and I think I was fascinated with the world because I grew up in Perth, Western Australia, which is the world's most isolated city. So we didn't get to travel much when I was a child. It was the 1980s and people didn't travel so much then as they do today. So I would lose myself. My mind would wander uh, around the world through reading. And um, that's how I became fascinated with history and uh, with the histories of different places around the world. And when I went to do my undergraduate studies at the Australian National University, I decided to specialize in Europe, I suppose partly because my uh, family comes from Croatia, so I wanted to learn more about my own personal family background, uh, but also because I thought Europe was fascinating, the diversity of cultures, of languages. I also uh, love to learn languages, and I was even learning uh, Italian and French um, as a child in school. So somehow uh, European studies, uh, which I chose to uh, pursue when I was at the Australian National University, seemed to be the ideal subject. How many languages do you speak? Well, I'm a native speaker of English and Croatian and fluent in German, Italian and Czech. I also spent a semester abroad at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, so I studied Hebrew and I still understand a bit of Hebrew, but I would like to polish it a bit more if the opportunity should arise. Um, I also understand uh, Slovenian, lots of other Slavic languages because they're all quite connected. And in my research, I deal with a lot of Slavic languages. So I would like to learn more languages, yeah. though I love learning languages. <laughs> That really. is quite impressive. So you're an easy learner. Yes, 
I was when I was younger. Let's see if that's still the case these days. I'm not old, though. I should <laughs> no, you are not. <laughs> tell your listeners. I wonder how much longer my talent for languages will last. Hopefully forever. It's something that keeps the brain very youthful. You already said it. You grew up in Australia, but you have uh, your roots in Croatia, your family. When was the first time you visited Eastern Europe? Well, it was 1985, so um, Croatia was a part of Yugoslavia then. Uh, and I remember we also went to visit her family in France. I mean, my family is a family of immigrants. We're all over the world in America, France, uh, Croatia, Australia, of course. It was wonderful to visit them, to meet them for the first time. And um, I remember that trip very well. And I remember coming back to Australia as a child and just crying because I just wanted to travel again. But like I said, it wasn't so easy in those days. But you, you traveled a lot afterwards. Yes, my dreams came true. Australia is on the other side of the world from Europe. What picture of communist states in Europe did you have in your mind when you grew up? Well, I remember reading um, encyclopedias, magazines and Watching TV, we grew up with a lot of American uh, programs uh, when I was a child in Australia. So the communists were always presented in a negative light, very stereotypically. And through my studies, I came to learn that, of course, a lot of crimes were committed under communism, but the picture is a more diverse one, the picture of how people lived, how people survived, The communist uh, governments lasted some 45 years and there are a lot of different phases um, in those times, phases of reform, of liberalization, phases in which the governments were more oppressive. And um, through my studies, I came to learn much more about all of this. Your career is quite impressive. I said it in the beginning. You have a master's degree from Yale University, a master and a PhD from Columbia. And also you did research work um, in Florence, in Italy, in Prague, in the US, in the United States, as well as in Austria. Did you know right after school that you would find your sci a future in science? No. As a child, I dreamt of being an actor first of all, and then a diplomat. And it's funny because now I look back and I think the topic I ended up with, the Eurovision Song Contest, seems to combine all of this. <laughs> <laughs> because on the one hand, you know, you're dealing with, uh, you know, popular culture, television and popular music, so you're dealing with performance. Mm -hmm. Um And then you're dealing with political issues in international relations because the Eurovision Song Contest is a big uh, international event. It's an event in which states are represented. So there you have the diplomatic side. And then when it comes to my actual job, I mean, I have to travel a lot for it to do the research in different archives, to interview people involved in the contest and... Then I also have a media profile as an academic commentator on uh, Eurovision. I was the first academic to really scientifically explore the history of uh, Eurovision. So that makes me one of the leading academic commentators on Eurovision. And so in that sense as well, I have to perform, deal with the media and appear on television and on radio and so on. 
So, in a way, I'm an actor as well, right? Absolutely. <laughs> We'll talk a lot more about the Eurovision Song Contest in a second. First, how did you get into Columbia and Yale, both being a huge challenge to be accepted? That's an interesting question. So I um, had very good uh, marks at the Australian National University. I was the top of my year and received the uh, university prize for that. Then I decided that I really wanted to explore the world more and to go abroad and to study further. I mean, studying was always, for me, the easiest way to explore the world because it gives you a reason mm -hmm. to go somewhere. And then if you could get scholarships and so on, you could fund it. So I managed to both advance my career, but also advance my dream of traveling the world and living in different places. So with Yale, I applied for a master's degree in East European Studies And I received a Fulbright scholarship for that. And uh, that's how I ended up in New Haven. And I spent two years there, also with the intention of going on to a PhD. And then I applied to do uh, my doctoral studies at Columbia University, partly because Columbia University is just so strong uh, when it comes to the study of international relations It also has a very prominent center for the study of Central and East Europe, the Harriman Institute, which was also very generous in financing my studies. And Columbia University is in the middle of New York City. <laughs> so it was fantastic to... New York, New York. New York, New York, an amazing place. Absolutely amazing place. And I can never say that, you know, I have a favorite place where I lived. Every place was special to me in some way and contributed to forming uh, the person who I am today. So Columbia certainly did that and New York City uh, certainly did that. You're now situated at the Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. What makes transformations in politics and society exciting for you as an historian? Yes, this is a center uh, we've been setting up for the past two years. Uh, it's headed by uh, Professor Philip Ter, who is an award-winning uh, historian of Europe. So it really is um, a pleasure and an honor to be able to work with him. So transformations, well, I mean, the world is constantly transforming. You know, it, it seems like such a general word, almost banal in many ways, But um, we especially focus on the transformations that took place in Central and East Europe after the fall of communism. But we don't just focus on this region. We also try to make connections with uh, the rest of the world. So if you look at the changes that took, that took place in Central and East Europe in the 1990s, we also compare them and connect them with the changes, the transformations that have taken place in Asia since then as well. And there are a lot of similarities in that regard. It's a very general term, which means that it gives us a lot of freedom to examine different topics. But on the other hand, it also uh, makes us look for topics that have a certain weight, you know, that... There's a difference between the terms changes and transformations, let's say, even though I just used both somewhat interchangeably, you know, a change can be small, but a transformation is really something big. Mm 
So I suppose the uh, term transformations also carries a much more weight in that regard because we're talking about really significant historical periods. Would you say that we are living in a time of transformation right now? Absolutely. Absolutely, I think so. I think when we all look at, look at our lives, this is really a special time for all of us, a unique period. But then when we put it in a historical context, it's really, there is really a, a lot going on, not only with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, but also when we look at the technological changes that have taken place in the last two decades, uh, we are really living in a a time of huge huge change for humanity and the question other way around would was there in the last let's say 100 years or so a time where you would say okay this was a time of no transformation and changes at all or, or very little transformation if you if you compare it to to today perhaps but i mean every historical era has its changes It's hard to say. I mean, if we look at uh, social change, we can see the 1950s and the 1960s as a huge uh, turning point for those. But if we look at technological changes, then, you know, really the last two decades have been uh, big in that regard. But then, again, going back to the 1950s and 1960s, you know, the emergence and expansion of television was also a huge thing just not a quiet decade yeah <laughs> or not not quiet decades no i don't think there was a, a quiet decade maybe in australia <laughs> <laughs> in perth <laughs> maybe in perth yeah you know australia is a very stable country in mm -hmm. that regard because of its isolation mm -hmm. but on the other hand australia also experienced huge changes in the 50s and 60s um Through immigration, for example, mm. so many migrants coming then from Southern Europe, Greece, Italy, Yugoslavia especially, uh, my family being an example. Australian history is also uh, fascinating in its own way. Okay, let's come to your biggest topic. Your biggest research area, as I mentioned, is the Eurovision Song Contest, which I'm sure our listeners will find fascinating. You published a monography on this topic as well. What is it about this event that appeals so much To you, Well, I started watching Eurovision when I was a child growing up in Australia. It was broadcast then on the Special Broadcasting Service, which is a very unique television broadcaster in the whole world because it was set up in the early 1980s in Australia to broadcast programming in different languages and programming that was uh, targeted towards a multicultural, multilingual audience in Australia. So to the new migrants, let's say. SBS, as it is uh, called by its abbreviation, started broadcasting the Eurovision Song Contest in 1983. And as such, I got to grow up uh, watching it. And again, I found it fascinating because I uh, loved learning languages already then. And hearing all of these different songs in different languages. This was still when the song contest had the rule that entries had to be sung in the languages of the states that they represented. So there I was watching all of these songs, listening to all of these lyrics in uh, different languages, and I just found it absolutely fascinating, and I loved it. I loved the show. 
I loved how it was and still is uh, staged in uh, different countries, giving each of these countries an opportunity to present themselves in a certain way, to tell the world about themselves, about their cultures, uh, their histories. And so this is why I became really fascinated with, with this event. And I remember that as a student at the Australian National University, I wrote my first essay on the Eurovision Song Contest. And uh, my professor was very impressed by the idea. This was in the late 1990s. Then I went to study in Israel in 1999. And uh, as luck would have it, Israel hosted the Eurovision Song Contest then in Jerusalem. And I got to go to my first uh, Eurovision. Nice. Yes, it was (laughs) wonderful. It was um, a great experience and very interesting because at that time Eurovision was still relatively a small-scale affair. It wasn't held in these huge arenas or halls. It was in this rather small uh, conference center in uh, Jerusalem. Now when I go to Eurovision, it's, of course, a much bigger event. What was the reason the Sun Contest was implemented in the first place in 1956, I think? So one of the myths about uh, the contest is that it was uh, started in 1956 to promote peace in uh, Europe just after the end of the Second World War and to promote European integration. This is a myth that has been spread through a popular uh, literature on Eurovision through the media as well. And what I wanted to do in my research is to really challenge these myths and to find out what actually went on. Because a problem with the study of uh, Eurovision was that no one really took the topic that seriously or seriously enough to go to archives and really look in depth about the decision-making processes that were going on in the European Broadcasting Union, which has always organized Eurovision, or to look at political reactions to Eurovision and so on. So this is one of the myths that I do address in my book. And in the end, the reason they established Eurovision in 1956 was really to test the nascent television technology. What the organizers of Eurovision wanted to do was to see whether they could broadcast a program simultaneously and live across Western Europe. So the reason was really a technical one. The reason was really a technical one, yes. I'm pretty sure no one knows that, or not many people know that. No, no, they don't, they don't. And there were no political aims Mm -hmm. behind Eurovision. And even today, the organizers of Eurovision say that it is not a political event. But, you know, when you have so many states participating, things are bound to get political. It is political. Yes. (laughs) What were the main milestones in the history of the Eurovision Song Contest? So after its establishment, I would say that the next milestone, if we could call it that, was in the late 1960s and early 1970s when the contest was really in a crisis. Viewing figures were uh, low among young people. And this is something that concerned uh, the European Broadcasting Union because the television officials there really wanted to capture the attention of young people. They wanted Eurovision to be a modern event, something that would be watched by youth, especially because uh, youth were at that time the main engine 
behind the development of the popular music industry. So uh, what the organizers did was that they tried to get the entries to be more in tune with contemporary tastes, to be more up to date with the latest trends in popular music. And then in the mid-1970s, we see these changes starting to have an effect when ABBA wins Eurovision in 1974 with the song Waterloo. And that ends up being the biggest hit that Eurovision has ever produced. The other big hit actually came in the late 1950s. It was Domenico Modugno's uh, Volare. It didn't win Eurovision, but it has since uh, become the world's biggest uh, popular music hit in a language other than English. So it took, you know, some 20 years for Eurovision to produce its next let's say, global hit. But was there any other global hit after these two? Celine Dion, winning in 1988. I mean, her song um, then perhaps didn't become as big as some of her, her other songs. She sang uh, Ne Partez Sans Pour Moi. But Eurovision really launched her global career. <laughs> And after that, she went on to be extremely successful in the United States and singing in English, as we know. But since then, there is not really a song or a singer that has been as huge. And I think this is something that Eurovision um, has also always struggled with, you know, this idea that it needs to produce big hits. You know, in the end, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it serves other purposes for Europeans and uh, for European identity. It doesn't need to be as globally influential. A hit factory. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Brings me to my next question. The Song Contest is a European event. Does it serve as a kind of ambassador for Europe in the broader world as well? There have been attempts to develop a following for Eurovision in other parts of the world. In Australia, it has been most successful because of the large number of uh, European migrants there and because of SBS broadcasting the show since 1983. During the Cold War period, it also had something of a following in Latin America because of the entry of uh, Portugal and Spain. And when Eurovision was hosted in Madrid in 1969, it was also broadcast then to uh, Latin America. And of course, you know, the Spanish and Portuguese singers have markets in Latin America as well. So there are a lot of connections there. And also some artists from South America ended up participating in uh, Eurovision through, um, through Spain. Apart from these two cases, though, Eurovision has never really taken off elsewhere. In the United States, it never became big, even though it was broadcast there in the 1970s, but it wasn't broadcast live and it was not broadcast uh, nationally just by the public service broadcaster PBS. But there are attempts now to really expand to the United States in the recent film, the Eurovision Song Contest, the story of uh, Fire Saga. So uh, this film by Will Ferrell, which uh, debuted on uh, Netflix just this summer, is also an attempt to really promote Eurovision in the United States and to try to uh, develop a market for the contest there. The contest has in recent years been shown on American television, but it still really hasn't captured the imagination of Americans. Is this also a problem of the, of the time zones? 
Not really, because there's the same issue with Australia. Yeah, you're right. But in Australia, <laughs> historically, the contest was just shown uh, the Sunday evening okay. afterwards. Okay. And um, now because Australia participates, so it's also broadcast live and then once again uh, later on. Mm. So, yeah, there are ways to get around the difference in time zones. I've read that for you, the song contest is a mirror of social topics and trends that move Europe. What were the main trend in, trends in the past years? Well, in recent years, diversity has really been a big theme in Eurovision. And especially the promotion of sexual minorities. So we uh, saw this especially with regards to Austria and the victory of uh, Conchita Wurst in 2014. That was a big thing for many uh, sexual minorities around the world. And it was also a very big thing for Austria. It portrayed a very different image of Austria than you know, the one that we usually associate with Austria, the Austria of empire, the Austria of uh, Vienna, of classical music. Very traditional. Very traditional, conservative, cozy. <laughs> yeah. um, Small, mountains. <laughs> mountains, exactly. The sound of music type. Yeah, oh my God. Stereotype, exactly. <laughs> uh, which we also watched in Australia oh a lot. It's very popular in Australia <laughs> really? too. And Conchita Wurst changed this image. But I think that it was also disappointing that in Austria, initially there was a momentum after uh, Conchita won to uh, bring in gay marriage, for example, but that didn't happen immediately, even though some politicians were quick to get on the uh, Conchita bandwagon and, and praise her for her victory and for mm -hmm. promoting the visibility of sexual minorities. And they said, yes, 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 now we uh, need to introduce gay marriage. And that, of course still took uh, some years to come. And in the end, it ended up being a decision by the uh, Constitutional Court that brought about a gay marriage in Austria. So, you know, perhaps more could have been done with uh, Conchita's uh, victory. But it was for me, it was a very interesting thing to see because I uh, was here at the time and then I really got to see the impact that uh, Eurovision can have on a country and how officials in that country start thinking about how they should represent their country when they host Eurovision. And I could be a part of that as well because I um, uh, cooperated with the Austrian national broadcaster, ORF, and gave a talk at the Vienna Tourist Board and uh, even uh, had my own symposium on Eurovision and international relations at the House of U the European Union. Uh, where academics, journalists and diplomats came together to speak about the impact that Eurovision has on international relations. And um, at that event, I also had three keynote speakers, three women who had performed in Eurovision and had gone on to become uh, politicians oh, wow. in their countries. So really connecting Eurovision and politics mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, when Austria hosted Eurovision in 2015, it was really an ideal opportunity to um, promote my, my research and to develop a profile for myself as a commentator on Eurovision. 2020 is the first year the Eurovision Song Contest got cancelled. The very yes. first year. Do you think this will be made a subject in the next year's song contest? It could be. I mean, the European Broadcasting Union is making efforts to 
make sure that somehow Eurovision can be staged in the future, even if we do face a similar situation to the one that we have faced uh, this year. And certainly we don't know what will happen with the pandemic mm. by May 2021 when the next uh, Eurovision will be staged. But something needs to be held. I mean, it can't be another year like this in which the contest is just cancelled. That was something quite shocking considering that Eurovision had always been staged without fail every year. Even in countries that were at war or that were facing an economic crisis or some sort of major political change, Eurovision had always managed to be held. So I think it was a disappointment this year that there wasn't a more creative solution that was found to somehow see the uh, contest go on because it does mean so much for Europeans. You know, it's really one of the cultural events that most unites Europeans. I've spoken to commissioners from the European Union who have said that uh, there are two cultural events that unite Europeans. One of them is Eurovision. The other one is uh, the UEFA Cup. And so this is even something that is recognized in the top decision-making bodies of the European Union. And this is something I also deal with in my book. I talk about how the organizations of the European Union have historically seen uh, Eurovision as an inspiration on how to, for how to develop um, cultural policies that bring Europeans together. So this is something I don't think we should ever forget about the contest. And it's a reason why the contest needs to be held every year. Let's take a deeper look into the history of the Eurovision in, in Eastern Europe or Southern Eastern Europe about uh, the situation in Yugoslavia. How and when did it start there? So Yugoslavia entered Eurovision in 1961 and during the Cold War, it was the only Communist Party-led state that participated in Eurovision. And this is because uh, Yugoslavia ended its alliance with the Soviet Union in 1948 because it didn't want to uh, be subject to the domination of the Soviet Union. And thereafter, it developed a non-aligned foreign policy, which saw Yugoslavia situate itself between uh, East and West and having economic cultural and political ties with both, although it always remained run by the Communist Party of Yugoslavia. This meant that in 1915, Yugoslavia could join the European Broadcasting Union. As I mentioned, that's the organizer of the Eurovision Song Contest. And with membership of the European Broadcasting Union, it could uh, go on to enter the Eurovision Song Contest in 1961. Eurovision Song Contest is an initiative of Western countries, of the EBU. In communist times, the Western world and its products and achievements were seen somehow as a threat in the communist countries. The reaction by socialist states to this was often censorship, media control, etc. What was Yugoslavia's position on this? Okay, so this is one of the myths that we often hear about okay. Communist Party-led states. And actually, in my new research project on Intervision, I uh, really challenge these yeah, myths. Can you tell us what Intervision is for so a few words? The Intervision Song Contest was basically the Eastern European equivalent of the Eurovision Song Contest during the Cold War. Many commentators have seen it as some sort of copy of Eurovision, 
but also a, re a reflection of uh, censorship and control by the ruling communist parties in Eastern Europe. And this is something that is actually not true. The states of Eastern Europe were also cooperating with with the West. They were open to Western cultural influences, especially from the late 1950s with the advent of de-Stalinization. And for them, the development of their own popular music industries was something important, not only to satisfy the desires for entertainment that uh, their citizens had, but also as a sign of their economic development, as a sign of their ability to produce attractive consumer goods. And they even hoped to be able to export these products abroad and to make money from their own popular music stars and uh, songs. Did this work out to export? In some ways, yes. I mean, there were some big stars who uh, came out of Eastern Europe. Karel Gott, for example, yeah. the uh, Czech singer who recently passed away, but who was certainly one of the most popular uh, Eastern European singers across Europe during the Cold War and even after. I'm not sure if, if the if the German-speaking countries see Karel Gott as a communist um, artist because his name sounds German. Yes. And he, he was even singing in German as well. He sang in right. German yeah, as well, yes. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> this idea that uh, somehow Western popular music was centered and controlled in Eastern Europe during the Cold War is definitely uh, not the case. And actually, the Intervision Song Contest, it was staged in two series, first in Czechoslovakia from 1965 to 1968, and then in Poland from uh, 1977 to 1980. And uh, in the first series, they were always inviting Western guests to uh, perform in the contest, in the interval, uh, for example. And in 1968, during the Prague Spring, the Czechoslovak uh, media was liberalized. Censorship was no longer an issue there. And uh, Czechoslovak television decided to also invite entries from Western Europe to compete in the contest. And uh, that included singers from West Germany, mm -hmm. from Austria, Switzerland, and uh, some others. So that actually the contest in 1968, the Intervision Song Contest, was the first ever pan-European song contest. And in that way, it was much more innovative than Eurovision was at that time, because Eurovision uh, during the Cold War never allowed entries from Eastern Europe. So entries from states uh, that were not part of the European Broadcasting Union. So there were also a lot of creative and innovative uh, dimensions to the Intervision Song Contest, which reflected the fact that its organizers wanted to have more cooperation with uh, Western artists, with Western record companies as well. You mentioned before the Eurovision Song Contest is a cultural event, not a political one, although it is political because there are many countries participating. Were there any political scandals or striking examples of political upheaval in the contributions? Absolutely. I mean, there have always been songs that have had some sort of political message. If we go back to the first Eurovision in 1956, West Germany was represented by Walter Andreas Schwarz, who was a Jew and a concentration camp survivor. So automatically, that was sending a political message about the character of West Germany. 
Then in the 1960s, there were a lot of songs which drew attention to women's issues. For example, there was a French song about uh, rape. There were, you know, songs that reflected the uh, sexual liberalization. Uh, at the time, there were songs about war and peace. Political issues have always been in Eurovision. In, most, in the most recent years, the big political issues have concerned uh, the war in Ukraine and the tensions between Russia on the one hand and Ukraine on the, and the West on the other that have uh, resulted from this war, but also, you know, broader tensions that concern the relations between uh, Russia and the West as well, especially when it comes to the issue of gay rights in Russia. The song that was probably most significant in that regard was the victory of uh, Ukraine in 2016 with the song 1944 that was sung by Jamala and alluded to uh, the Russian annexation of Crimea, even though it is the song's lyrics themselves deal with the expulsion of uh, Crimean Tatars from uh, Crimea during the Second World War. Does these contributions, especially Conchita Wurst, somehow contribute to opening up the society in more traditional countries towards this commu the community of LGBTIQ? It can help. Certainly when Israel won uh, the Eurovision Song Contest in 1998 with the um, transsexual Dana International singing diva, that certainly did a lot for the advancement of the rights of sexual minorities in Israel. On the other hand, though, the victory of Contita in 2014, you know, perhaps, as I mentioned before, more could have been done with that to advance the rights of uh, sexual minorities in Austria. When we look at countries that have a higher level of political and social homophobia, if we look at Azerbaijan, for example, the uh, hosting of the contest in Baku in 2012 was seen by many European politicians and commentators as a way for Azerbaijan to open up to the world, to um, become more liberal politically and uh, socially. But there, the situation has actually uh, worsened since uh, Baku hosted Eurovision in 2012, so that the dictatorship of Ilham Aliyev has actually reduced media freedom since then, and there have been more oppressive measures taken against sexual minorities in Azerbaijan since then. It's a mixed record. Mm -hmm. How did Azerbaijan become a participant? Because it's not Europe, as I know. <laughs> well, if you ask Azerbaijanis, they would see themselves as Europeans. And this is uh, very interesting how European is defined across this space that Eurovision covers. But when it comes to Azerbaijan, so to be a member of the European Broadcasting Union and hence to enter the Eurovision Song Contest, a national public service broadcasting organization has to lie within a technical area called the European Broadcasting Area, which basically includes continental Europe and the states surrounding the Mediterranean Rim. Azerbaijan was included in this region during the Cold War because it was part of the Soviet Union. But then when the Soviet Union collapsed and Azerbaijan became independent, Azerbaijan found itself outside of this area. But Azerbaijan, Armenia and Georgia all wanted to be a part of this 
area, partly because it meant that they could then enter the Eurovision Song Contest. So the rules were changed in 2006 to allow for these countries to be part of the European Broadcasting Union. Basically, the rule was changed and rather than only allowing membership of the European Broadcasting Union to countries that are part of the European Broadcasting Area, it also allowed it to um, states that are members of the Council of Europe. So in that sense, the boundaries were expanded and that allowed the uh, states from Transcaucasia to also enter Eurovision. Do you know the situation about Great Britain after Brexit? Will they take part in next year's song contest as well? Will they will they stay in the European Broadcasting Union? Definitely. The BBC is a big player in the European Broadcasting Union. It all, always has been. The union was actually uh, set up in the United Kingdom in 1950. And the BBC was obviously then a leader in setting up the European Broadcasting Union. And again, the European Broadcasting Union has nothing to do with Europe. the European Union. There is no direct political connection there. The European Broadcasting Union has always been independent of other European organizations. So in this regard, we won't see the BBC leaving the European Broadcasting Union, even though there have been surveys conducted in the United Kingdom in recent years, which have shown that Britons are the only public in Europe which want to both leave the European Union and the Eurovision Song Contest. There has been a lot of criticism of Eurovision in the United Kingdom in the past two decades, especially because of what a lot of uh, media commentators have seen as the biased voting among Central and East European states and against the uh, United Kingdom entries because uh, the British entries have not done very well in Eurovision in the last two decades. So these commentators have um, sought culprits for the failures of the United Kingdom in Eurovision in uh, recent years. But, you know, a national broadcasting organization can be a member of the European Broadcasting Union and not participate in Eurovision. So, you know, even if the BBC were to leave Eurovision, that doesn't mean that it has to leave the European mm -hmm. Broadcasting Union. Uh, you said before that the um, song contest was very important for the migrants in Australia. That's also how you um, came to see it in the first place. What meaning has the participation or non-participation of countries like Turkey or Croatia for the migrants in Austria? Ah, that's an interesting one too, because living here I often try to look at the similarities between the migrant experiences here and those in Australia. So the similarities and the differences. Turkey is an interesting example because Turkey participated in Eurovision from 1975 until 2012 and the contest was very popular in Turkey. But then Turkey withdrew in 2012 uh, because it criticized the voting rules from 1999 until uh, 2012 the voting result had largely or wholly been based on the public vote 
and because of criticisms coming from West European broadcasting organizations and commentators, the voting system was changed in 2009 to again make the result based half on a jury vote and half on a public vote. And this did not appeal to the Turkish national broadcaster because of the large Turkish diaspora in Europe, which proved to be a good supporter of Turkey's entries in, uh, in Eurovision. The other thing is that the top five countries in terms of the financing of Eurovision, Germany, the United Kingdom, Italy, France and Spain have been given direct entry into the final, which is also something that is uh, criticized by Turkey because Turkey has a larger population than all of these countries with the exception of uh, Germany. So this is why Turkey has uh, not participated in Eurovision since 2012. And I think that is a shame uh, when it comes to the migrant communities, because when, for example, the contest was staged in Vienna, it would have been uh, very interesting to see the reaction of the local Turkish community, especially because the contest was staged in the Stadthalle, which is in an area uh, where a large number of Turks live. Another research field of yours, not completely divorced, um, divorced from the song contest, is popular culture in general, especially in Eastern Europe. How do you see the role of pop culture in shaping the national identity of a state? Well, as I um, demonstrate in my research, popular culture has always historically been important in the, in the shaping of national identities in a nation branding as well. So, for example, in the 1950s, in the late 1950s, we see the communist governments of Eastern Europe taking popular music seriously, not only as commercial products, but also as something that can be um, exported internationally to promote an image of their states as a liberal open and modern. And this is something that I especially dealt with in terms of Yugoslavia. I looked how the uh, music that was used in cultural diplomacy went from being folk music to uh, popular music because the Communist Party realized that uh, folk music presented a backward image of the state that uh, didn't express the achievements that had been achieved in terms of industrialization urbanization and modernization uh, generally, especially that which had taken place in the 1950s. In that sense, popular culture for the communist governments of Eastern Europe was already then being taken uh, very seriously in terms of the construction of national identities and in the branding of their states internationally. When going from folk music to popular music, but music from... Eastern European countries, also from Austrian. So they're still nationally characterized. How nationally characterized can they be to be internationally successful? Well, this is one of the problems which we encounter in Eurovision, because on the one hand, a lot of entries want to use the opportunity to present their national or even regional cultures on stage. On the other hand, they need to appeal to an international audience to get votes. So what is the recipe there? The fact that entries in Eurovision have since 1999 been mostly in English, since the rule that they had to be in national languages was ended, also suggests that a lot of these entries have tended to go f more for an international style rather than uh, a national style. And this is something that is very controversial and which also then brings into question what the aims of these entries are 
are they to represent the uh, national culture that uh, they come from or are they to advance the careers of the persons uh, behind these entries. Yes, that's the interesting thing about popular music as well. On the one hand, it's an international phenomenon, but on the other hand, you know, different cultures have also uh, left their own national or regional marks on popular music so that we have, you know, phenomena like Austropop of popular music that, that is influenced by folk music as well. But yeah, exactly what choices to make on the Eurovision stage is always an interesting process to, to follow. And I think it tells you a lot about how much a country wants to use Eurovision to promote itself internationally. We're talking for quite a while now, so I'll come to my last questions. From all your research destinations around the globe, you chose, you chose Austria to live in, at least for a while. <laughs> Why Austria? I suppose, in a way, it was uh, luck, because I met Philip Ter, who was then uh, researching and had produced a book on opera and uh, nation-building in Europe. And there were a lot of connections there between um, his research, of course, and mine on popular music. So I applied for the uh, Marie Skłodowska Curie Fellowship with his support. And um, yes, then I came here in 2013, and then Austria won Eurovision in 2014, which really was a huge boost for my career, and especially in terms of uh, my media profile. And um, that also gave me a lot of opportunities to work with different organizations here, such as uh, ORF and different international organizations, diplomatic missions. So my career really took off in a different way here. And I'm very grateful for that, for the openness of um, Austria and Vienna and the opportunities that I've had to really uh, develop my uh, career in new directions. And I think that's what I really find attractive about this city, that it is so central and international. I mean, I still love to travel, so Vienna is uh, a great uh, location for that. But I also know that there are just so many resources here that I can uh, still benefit from. And the way in which you can come here and integrate and you know find your own space in that regard is you know is quite fascinating and you know I think it really says a lot for for the Austria of today you know how diverse and multicultural uh, this place is and how many opportunities it still gives to so many people from uh, different parts of the world. Okay, Dean, thank you so much for being here today. This was Dean Vuletic, historian at the University of Vienna. Thank you for listening to Alumni Audio Lab, a podcast of the OEAD. All former episodes can be found at our website, oead.it slash alumni minus audio lab. Dean, thank you. Thank you very much. Alumni Audio Lab.